Start with what you believe about Jesus, specifically the good news itself, the gospel itself. Do you believe that the just penalty for your sins was paid by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? Do you believe that his life, death, and resurrection brings you forgiveness and unites you to God and brings you into his family? If the answer is yes, then you do know Christ. Then you have confirmed your calling and election. And for those who know Christ, Colossians 1 says that he is going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The way to be found without spot or blemish is to be found in Christ because Christ is going to present his church, his bride, without spot or blemish. Jude 24 says that the Lord is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Since you're waiting on the new creation that Jesus will bring, make every effort to know Christ. And when he returns, you will be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You'll be found this way because Jesus is without spot or blemish. And you now have his righteousness once you have trusted in him. So make every effort to know Christ. In addition to that, thank God for graciously delaying Christ's return. You'll recall that in 1 Peter 3, 9, Peter said, The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. In verse 15, he returns to that theme to once again lead us to the right attitude regarding this time of waiting. Look at verse 15 again. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Count or regard or reckon, to use a good southern word, reckon the patience of our Lord as as salvation, Re reckon, regard, consider the delay of Christ's return as grace to you. Instead of rejecting or doubting his promise to return like the scoffers, instead of considering this time delay as some kind of defect or weakness on God's behalf, praise God for the patience that he has shown. Thank him for this delay. He delayed in order to allow time for you and me to come to Christ. And his continued delay, however long it might be, will mean salvation for others. Give God thanks and honor for his patience. Psalm 86, 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The return of Christ is going to bring a time of judgment when all the world will be judged and those who are found to be ungodly outside Christ will be destroyed and sentenced to eternal hell. So the Lord's delay is an act of mercy. The Lord's patience is being displayed. Thank him for the long delay between the ascension of Christ and his return. His patience has meant the salvation of millions, including you and I. Give him glory for patience. Don't complain that he's moving too slowly. After that exhortation, uh, Peter brings up the apostle Paul and it it seems like a little bit of a sidebar, but uh, I'm hoping I can tie that together. Look at verses 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So Peter wants his readers to know that, excuse me, yes, Peter. Peter wants his readers to know that the apostle Paul, we just need Mary in there, don't we? We've got Peter and Paul that the Apostle Paul is teaching the same doctrine that he's teaching. The second half of verse 16 tells us that these false teachers were actually distorting what Paul had written to teach false.
false doctrine. And so Peter is wanting us to know that, no, 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 what Peter says and what I say, excuse me, Peter wants us to know that what he and Paul both say is in agreement. I knew I would get those uh, mixed up. Because those who were taken in by these false teachers were led to believe that Paul was teaching something different. So then it was like, well, this apostle says this, and this apostle says this, so I don't know which is right. Peter wants us to know that, no, what Paul says is exactly what I am saying about the return of the Lord. Now, uh, interestingly, this phrase, our beloved brother, when he says our beloved brother Paul, that has caused a number of scholars to say that there's no way that Peter either wrote or dictated this letter because he never would have called Paul his beloved brother. And the reason they say that is because of what happened in Galatians chapter 2 when the apostle Paul publicly confronted the apostle Peter and told him, you are living in a way that contradicts the gospel. You are out of step with the gospel. So these scholars conclude, well, since there was this tension between them, this, this confrontation, he couldn't have called him his beloved brother. And I hope just by even saying that out loud, you guys see how ridiculous such a conclusion is. Because the most natural way to understand it is that Peter did receive what Paul said to him, recognized it as truth, and continued to love Paul as a, as a brother in Christ. Now, Peter said that we should count the Lord's patience as salvation, and then he added, just as Paul wrote to you. We don't know exactly what specific parts of Paul's letters that, that Peter is referring to here, but one possibility is the book of Romans, because in Romans 2 it says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So Paul said in Romans 2 that God's patience is an act of kindness, which leads to repentance, which of course leads to salvation. So excuse me, Peter and Paul are saying the same thing, that this delay, this, this delay of God's wrath and God's judgment is a kindness to lead people to salvation. And this actually is a sidebar, but Peter once again sheds light on the nature of Scripture by saying that Paul was writing according to the wisdom given to him. According to the wisdom given him. Paul's writings were not based on his wisdom. He was given wisdom by the Lord. You'll remember in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter said that the faith is not based on cleverly devised myths and that no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man. The scriptures are not the product of human ingenuity or wisdom. They originated in the mind of God. Paul wrote about God's nature and acts and plans because God revealed it to him. It was wisdom that was given to him, not wisdom that he generated in himself. The letters that Paul wrote are God's wisdom and God's revelation. And that's why we can be certain that Paul said the same thing that Peter said because both of them, their ideas, their wisdom originated within God himself. But there is one tie-in, hopefully that will help you uh, think that this is part of the second point. <laughs> the, uh, the fact that Paul is saying the same thing as Peter does strengthen our faith that indeed this time of waiting is purposeful and merciful on God's behalf. It isn't because of some wrinkle that has happened in God's plan, because as we know, no man, no devil can stop or alter or hinder God's plan. He is all sovereign, all powerful, all knowing, no force in the universe can stop him from doing what he intends to accomplish. Therefore, we can say, praise God for this delay. Praise God for this thus far 2,000 years between Christ's ascension and his return. And Peter can say, yes, all of us apostles agree on this. Apostolic teaching can be counted on because it is not wisdom that we came up with. It is wisdom that was given to us by God. 
The third command is this, be on guard against error. Be on guard against error. All of chapter 2 and much of chapter 3 are dedicated to exposing and refuting false teachers and ungodly influences in the church. So as he's wrapping up the letter, uh, Peter turns once again to bring up this danger. Look with me at verses 16 and 17 once again. But that leads to a warning because Peter says what happens is that people that are ungodly, ignorant, willfully so, or unstable in their faith, they take those hard parts and then they twist them to say what they want to say. This twisting of Scripture leads them to destruction. Now, these ignorant and unstable people that he's talking about, uh, probably the ignorant refers to the false teachers who are willingly ignorant of pure doctrine. Their ignorance is based on their refusal to submit to the teaching of Scripture. They don't want to live according to God's commands and dictates. They don't want to live in a way that glorifies God. They want to follow their own sinful desires. So, therefore, they have this motivation to twist what Scripture says to confirm or justify the way they're living. The unstable are those who are not firm in their faith, uh, either because they haven't really believed or because they're immature Christians. Peter mentioned in chapter 2 that false teachers entice unstable souls. The ignorant and unstable then probably refers to false teachers and those who follow their teachings. These people twist or distort the teaching of the Apostle Paul as well as the other scriptures. And by the way, this verse is one of the verses that we use to show that the writings of the apostles were regarded as scripture even during their lifetime because Peter says that they twist the writings of Paul as they do the other scriptures, meaning he's putting the writings of Paul in that same category. It's likely that these false teachers use Paul's teaching on justification by faith, being saved by grace to justify living in sin. Hey guys, we're, we're forgiven. It doesn't matter how we live. God isn't, isn't judging us based on our works, so live however you want. God really doesn't care if you live immoral. It's not, not, no concern to him. And that, of course, is a distortion of the teaching of God on grace. And twisting the scriptures is dangerous because Peter says that it will lead them to destruction. False teaching always leads you away from Christ rather than toward Christ. And the end of those who are not in Christ is destruction. Now, in the middle of this warning, don't forget that Jesus is able to keep those who are his. He said in John 10 that his sheep know him and no man is able to snatch them out of his hand. No false teacher is able to do that because no one is greater than Jesus and the Father. And that's who are those, excuse me, they are the ones who are keeping us. So a true believer will not face destruction as these false teachers who are not believers will face. Uh, Romans 8, of course, says there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even if you're an immature, goofy, silly Christian who's believing something wrong. But uh, those who are publicly associated with the church without having trusted in Christ are in mortal danger from this Bible-twisting words of false teachers because they are drawing near to true doctrine, but then they can be led away from Christ to trust in something else. And the false teachers themselves are in mortal danger. If the ignorant and the unstable do not repent and do not trust in Christ, then indeed they will end up being destroyed in hell. Now, true believers are facing some danger. This is a real warning, but we're not in danger of eternal destruction. Believers are in danger of being drawn away from Christ, being robbed of their joy, falling into immorality, and then being painfully disciplined to bring them back to the Lord. Paul finishes this warning by addressing Christians as beloved to highlight his love for them and most importantly, the Lord's love for his people. 
And he says, since you've been forewarned of this danger, be on your guard. Beware that there is error out there. Uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but I know that in the, in the church culture I grew up in, East Texas, classical Pentecostalism, small church, I could add a lot of modifiers, but within our context, there was a, a tendency to think, well, if somebody is calling themselves a Christian, surely they're not going to lead me astray. There's a tendency just of, of uh, spiritual naivety, and Peter's warning, warning us against this. There are people, there are wolves that are out there that will attack the sheep and attempt to draw them away from Christ and after themselves. And Peter says, look, I'm warning you about it, so therefore beware. Don't be carried away with the error of lawless people. Once again, pointing to the fact that people who reject the lordship of Christ, people who reject true doctrine, live in a way in contra- excuse me, live in a way that is rebelling against the lordship or the kingship of Jesus Christ. False teachers live immoral lives. They do not submit to the Lord Jesus. And Peter is saying, do not follow people who live lawlessly. Do not submit to one as someone as a spiritual leader if they are openly, consistently, unrepentantly rebelling against the lordship of Jesus Christ. Watch out for teachers that do not follow apostolic doctrine and watch out for teachers who live in open sin. It's the same message as 1 Peter 2. There are wolves prowling through the church, so be watchful. If you're carried away with their error, you will lose your stability, he says. The stability or firmness of your faith in Christ will be shaken if you fall into error. Your desire to please the Lord will be disrupted. Your desire to risk temptation will be blunted. So be on guard. As I mentioned during the uh, chapter 2 sermon, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And what do we test the spirits against? How do we test the spirits? We test them against the truth of Scripture. It's doctrinal, doctrinal truth and it's moral truth. Is someone willingly rebelling and openly rebelling against what God says as the right way to live? Is someone openly rebelling against teaching that is clear in Scripture? Then that person is to be avoided. That person is to be opposed. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The first sentence of verse 18 is a contrast to verse 17. He said, don't be carried away with the error of lawless people, but instead do this. Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. The most important countermeasure against error is growing or progressing or increasing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. He's telling us to make progress. Don't sit still. Don't stay immature. Move on. But what does it mean to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? The two really go hand in hand. If you're growing in grace, then you're also growing in your knowledge. But I want to think for just a minute about growing in grace. Now, one, one I think, helpful definition of grace is that it is undeserved blessing freely bestowed on humans by God. Grace is the starting point of the Christian life. By grace, you have been saved. Your salvation is a work of grace. He convicted you of sin. He convinced you of the truth of the saving work of Christ, and he gave you the faith to believe. And there's more grace then that comes once you have been saved. You're now united to Christ. You're now in Christ. Ephesians 1 that says that the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
So it, it kind of sounds like, especially thinking about that Ephesians 1 verse, it kind of sounds like we already have everything in Christ. We already have all grace. And that actually is true. We do have all of God's grace. It is all available to us in Christ. In fact, Colossians chapter 2 says, for in him the whole fullness of God, excuse me, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and you are filled or complete in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So you are complete in Christ, and you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. The weakest, most immature believer on earth is complete in Christ. The weakest, most immature believer on earth has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So then what does it mean to grow or increase in the grace of Christ? Well, we can grow or increase in our experience of this grace. And what do I mean by that? It means that we understand and live by his grace more and more. It means the more areas of our lives experience the grace of redemption from slavery to sin. For instance, when you add virtue to your faith, as Peter commanded in chapter 1, you grow in your experience of the Lord's grace because you now experience his grace in a new area of your life. You're now experiencing his grace by fighting against lust instead of freely yielding to it. You're experiencing his grace by cultivating the desire for purity instead of being apathetic toward moral beauty. And growing in our knowledge of Christ enables us to grow in grace, to experience his grace more deeply and more broadly. For instance, I used to think that pleasing other people was one of the highest virtues of the Christian life. And then one time I was reading in scripture and it said that pleasing men is in opposition to pleasing God. So once I read that, once I understood and grew in that knowledge, then I was able to experience God's grace in fighting against that tendency in myself rather than just yielding to it. So that was growth in the grace of Christ. I still only hit about 10% of the time, so don't be too impressed. Growing in our knowledge of Christ enables us to grow in grace. And obviously, we have to grow in our knowledge of Scripture in order to grow, of our knowledge, grow in our knowledge of Christ, because the Scriptures are the God-breathed revelation of who Jesus is and what He's done. So as you study Scripture and learn more of its meaning, you're getting to know Jesus better. Now, that comes with a little bit of a warning, because that's only true if you are studying Scripture with a teachable or humble heart, okay? I think we've all known people who can quote more verses than any of us that do not listen to those verses. <laughs> do not attempt to live by them. They're actually not learning, excuse me, studying with a teachable heart. They're just studying to fill up their minds or to impress others. The Holy Spirit is telling us that we need to progress in our spiritual lives. We should continue to learn Jesus. Jesus, of course, is an infinite being, so we'll spend eternity learning about him. So don't have the wrong idea that once you are saved, once you have come to Christ to save uh, to Christ as Savior, that now you know everything about him. You know him perfectly because you do not. What you know is, is the tiniest speck in the universe, and there's so much more to learn about him. And that brings us to the last phrase in this uh, book. Peter closed it with a, letter, a note of praise to him, speaking of Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. One motivation for growing in the grace of knowledge of Christ is to experience more of his grace so that our lives will be fuller and richer. We'll be able to serve and bless those around us more. But a higher motivation than that is to bring more glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He deserves praise and honor and adoration. He deserves it now and to the day of eternity, which is probably referring to the day of the Lord, that time when Jesus returns and sets up the new age, which will last forever. And he closes with amen, which means it's another way of saying it is true. This is true. I agree with it. The church can give glory to Jesus now by growing in grace and knowledge in the Lord Jesus. Our efforts toward maturity in Christ glorify him by acknowledging his infinite worth and by displaying his excellence. He is worthy to be imitated. He is worthy to be pursued. He is worthy to be known more and more. Increase in your experience and knowledge of Christ. Put simply, these last five verses are saying, grow in Christ. Grow in Christ. Do not stay where you are. Continue moving forward. Continue learning him. Peter was writing scripture as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a word from our almighty God, the king of the universe. He wants us to grow in Christ. He wants us to know him better and to taste his grace more fully. You and I need the gospel, the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We need the gospel to begin our walk with the Lord. We need the gospel every moment of our lives after that. And it is the gospel that powers our growth in Christ. We pursue increase in his grace and knowledge out of love and gratitude toward him. He doesn't demand growth in exchange for our acceptance before him. He graciously saved us and made us acceptable by his work. And now he graciously rescues us more and more from slavery to sin by commanding us to grow, to pursue him, to work to be more like him. Child of God, because of the work of Christ, you are already accepted and beloved forever. There is nothing that you can do that will change that. But God's love for you also is a call to say, come, know me better. Come, move more deeply into my knowledge and grace. Come and be more like me. If you came this morning bruised, battered, and beaten by your sin, drowning in shame because you failed again, I do want to direct your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank him for dying for the sin that you just committed. Thank him that he loves you despite that. Thank him that he desires to rescue you from slavery to sin. Confess it as sin and receive his restoring grace. He won't kick you away because you're a screw-up. He won't kick you away because this is the hundredth time that you've given in to that sin this week. He won't heap shame or condemnation to you, on you. He will continue to love you as his beloved child. And he will work in your life to help you to overcome that sin more and more. So let's receive his grace. Let's accept his work to redeem every part of our lives from sin by growing in his grace and growing in his knowledge. Let's stand.